The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, a professional airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. Welcome aboard flight 102 of the Squawk Ident podcast recorded on Wednesday, February 9th, 2022 from studio 1905 at the prince waikiki hotel in honolulu on the island of oahu hawaii on today's flight captain roger and i are joined by alex daigle to discuss his journey the exciting transition to his first 121 carrier and we also scratched the surface of some recent events in the aviation industry you might remember alex from flight 98 5G and Discovery Flights, where he exercised extreme patience with my GA flying skills. We here at Squawk Ident look forward to having you join us as we prepare to depart on Flight 102 of the Squawk Ident Podcast. Now that our pre-flight is complete, let's get ready to push off the gate and start those virtual podcast engines. Flight 102 of the Squawk Ident Podcast is officially underway. Joining us today is an exceptional aviator and Squawk Ident co-host. He is a professional CFI, double and MEI flight instructor, a former Embraer 145 airline pilot, a King Air instructor, Falcon 900 2000 commander, a captain, and a corporate operator as well. He joins us from his mobile podcast studio from the Courtyard Marriott in Mesa, Arizona. Please help me in welcoming back to the show, Captain Roger. Captain, how you doing? Well, well, Tony, it's good to be back. I'm, I'm excited for the show. It's, uh, you know, I haven't been on for a while. I forgot my mic. My internet's unstable, so I'm on my phone with a with a funky view of myself. And it's, you know, we're just gonna go wing it. So I'm I'm excited. I feel like I'm at my best in, in these situations. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes the winging it is just what we do well i figure it's the expectations you know the expectations are that much lower and so the lower the bar for me the more i feel like I, I, the possibility for me to to meet or or possibly even exceed them because otherwise you know it's just not gonna happen yeah my, my father always used to tell me son if you set the bar low you won't be disappointed wise man <laughs> wise man well also joining us today i know this was a. Uh, uh, kind of a last-minute idea to record the podcast. I'm here on a 30-hour layover uh, in Honolulu. I love Honolulu. I went for my run this morning, got my, my great meal, and, uh, and then I thought, wow, you guys want to record a podcast? And both of you were like, yeah, let's do this. Um, so without further ado, let us introduce our featured guest today. He was featured on Flight 98 of the Squawk Ident podcast, where he and I went up in one of the flight school's Cessna 172, uh, something that I had not done for years, actually over a decade, uh, since the last time I was in command of an airplane, by command meaning manipulating the controls of a 172. 
and Alex was very patient with me and we actually had a chuckle. There's some YouTube videos out there on the Squawk Eyed In YouTube channel uh, of the event. Uh, some of the laughter we had after my uh, bounced landing, if I'm being kind, I can call it a bounced landing. It was not a good one. Uh, but yeah, he was very patient with me. Uh, it was a, just an absolute pleasure to go up with one of our listeners and now a featured guest. He is a U.S. Navy Reserve's Chief Information Systems Technician, a CFI at Riverside Flight Academy, and soon to be a newly minted first officer at Sandpiper Air, the alias that we use as Legacy's wholly owned regional airline, at least one of them. Joining us from his approved podcast location in his Temecula home in sunny and windy Southern California, help us in welcoming to the show... Mr. Alex Daigle. Alex, how you doing? Doing good, Tony. It's a pleasure to be on here. Pleasure to meet Roger. I've uh, been listening to you guys for a long time, so it's now nice to, you know, put faces with voices. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've been going back and forth uh, now for a while. I've had the honor to uh, you know, answer a few questions that you've had along your journey. And it's really part of the main reason I wanted to start a podcast is because when I was going through and, and working on my ratings and learning how to uh, fly and make the mistakes and learn from them and, and learn about my hazardous attitudes and all the plethora of things that you do in flight training, I really didn't have anyone to go and ask about what the industry was like, at least real time. The few people that I was introduced to, uh, like captains and whatnot, or, or operators at a corporate um, business, they had gone through their flight training years ago, if not decades earlier. So the advice they gave me, I found to be a little out of date. So the Squawk Ident podcast was born. And it was for the reason of trying to spread current information on what to expect, at least at this level, not just in the airline industry, but in the aviation industry. And, you know, Alex, I'm very proud to say that you're one of the first listeners that started communicating with us. And we've been going back and forth now for well, a little over a year. And it's just fantastic to have you on the show. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad that you created something like this because there isn't much out there for the transitional period, you know, going from a CFI into 121 world. There's plenty of podcasts for getting started. There's plenty of podcasts for once you're established, but there's nothing in the middle. Yeah. Well, and thank you for saying that. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about today, the transition and, and what to look forward to. Now, I've been relatively busy in the past few weeks, um, as you can tell, because there haven't been that many shows uh, produced uh, since uh, probably the holidays. Uh, but now as uh, things are starting to get back to normal and both my flight schedule and, and the flight schedules of, of our crew here at Squawk Ident, we're happy that we're able to produce a few more shows here a month uh, than we were previously. Now in this show, first thing I wanted to do is talk about your journey in aviation and introduce you to all of our listeners out there. So Alex, how did your journey start? Uh, my journey started when I was a, a young kid. Uh, my dad is uh, now a retired Legacy Airlines captain, flew for them for 28 years. So my journey started super young, um, being you know, with my dad on different flights going around the country. 
Uh, I remember, I have vivid memories of uh, being like six, seven years old. This is pre 9-11 going with my dad down uh, into LA operations for Legacy Airlines and standing out on the tarmac and looking up and seeing you name the airplane and it was around us you know and it was that's one of my fondest memories i have is being able to do that with my dad um so my my journey started basically from there once i turned 18 my dad actually bought me as a graduation gift was getting my private license and uh i ended up getting my private license uh by funny story i actually wanted to get it on 9 11 2006 but uh, I had a scheduling conflict and ended up getting on 9-12-2006. Yeah, I, I remember us talking about that uh, in the airplane. And what a great way to thumb your nose at those individuals that decided to make trouble on our soil, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, it was, it was, uh, it was basically a big, uh, I'll call it a middle finger to those guys because at the end of the day, that's what it was. Um, but no, I, I got my license 2006 and decided to do what every 19 year old kid wants to do and not focus on anything in life. So I hemmed and hawed for about another year and a half until I decided to uh, take a pause from everything and enlist into the Navy. I uh, did six years on active duty and uh, by the time I got out, I was living in San Diego and I'd found a flight school down in San Diego that took the GI Bill and basically did a fast track without being a fast track attached to a college um, to get me through all my ratings. So I used my GI Bill, got through my commercial license before I had to deploy uh, in the reserves to Africa. Hmm. Uh, deployed to Africa for, I think it was eight months, came home three days before Christmas. Um, and then uh, after I came back home, that's when I started working on my CFI and been a CFI since 2018. Yeah. And, and we've heard a little bit about your journey from our previous show that we did together. And it was a first for me, this recording from the inside of a Cessna 172 in flight. And it was, it was a lot of fun. And I just want to say thank you for that. And for anybody that's interested for that, just go back and take a look at Flight 98 of the Squawk Ident podcast, 5G and Discovery Flights. Now, Alex, your GI Bill is something that, is it every enlisted officer in the Navy or every enlisted uh, person in the Navy has access to? Is that right? And I, I just want to jump in real quick, which is a great question, and, and I'm looking forward to the answer, but just... You know, I don't want, don't, don't discount yourself, Alex, you know, 19 year old that goes back and decides to take a break from anything, you know, going into the Navy is an admirable thing to do for all you listeners out there. There are some great benefits to that as well, of which the GI Bill is one of them. Um, but I commend you for your service. You know, there are a lot of late teenagers that, that choose to go into the armed forces <laughs> because they might lack some direction, but it is a very admirable way to go. And in, in no way would I suggest that that was because you were lost. And so I just wanted to throw that in there and thank you for your service. Um, and before you answer the relevant question for our podcast, which is how the GI Bill is a great way to go um, for all kinds of training, but specifically for us for flight training. Well, no, I appreciate the, the, the kind words there. I really do. It's, you know, uh, I do thank you guys for your support, right? Because, you know, 
joining into the military it's for you guys well you know well not just you guys but everybody else in the country right like we're, yeah, we're out there yeah at all. we're out there you know on the front lines and you know maybe on a big metal floaty thing in the middle of the ocean but we're still out there you know defending freedom yeah and you so, do it you do it you know as they call it a service you serve our country but more than that it's a service to our freedom our liberties are the fact that we can get in a car feel safe go to work you know have a family know that our kids are safe at home know that you know for the most part you know all the the freedoms and the services that our countries and our communities provide they're protected by the individuals that volunteer in this country to be in our armed services and, and Roger man you hit the nail on the head and and I just before you go on Alex I too want to say thank you to you um for your sacrifice um and you know to to circle back to the GI bill uh, I I was not in the armed services my wife was uh she was an army vet um and she used her GI bill also she she used it to receive a culinary school um certificate so she did it for that. Now you did it for aviation. What's that process like? You serve a minimum of what four years, and you automatically get a GI Bill, or or how does it work? So it's uh, thirty six months. You have to serve on active duty. Um, for the reservists, it's a little bit different. So I've obviously played both sides of the coins, being uh, active duty uh, and the reserves. The people that I know in the reserves, it's tougher for them to get their full benefits of the GI Bill because. You have to thir serve 36 months uh, on active duty. Um, so if you do a normal enlisted contract, go active, and you know four years and you're done, you get entitled to use the GI Bill. Uh, and there's two different GI Bills in today's world. Uh, one is the traditional Montgomery GI Bill, uh, which it, everybody kind of knows that's the, the traditional way. Like they pay for you know school or a vocation or whatnot. Um, and I believe for flying right now, it's uh, they do 60%. So you you pay out of pocket for the full 100 and they reimburse you the, the 60%, mm -hmm. uh, which isn't terrible. Uh, but it, the other way that you can do it is use the, the post 9-11 GI Bill. And that's more for college uh, type level courses. It's the one that I ended up using um, mainly because it was tied, my flight training was tied in with the college which made it a little easier uh, to pay for. And it was, everything was hundred percent taken care of between the GI bill and yellow ribbon. Uh, yellow ribbon is uh, colleges that participate. They basically, the college says the GI bill only pays for this much. Well, the yellow ribbon says we'll take up the slack. The college takes up the rest of the slack to, to cover you. So, um, and on top of all that, you get paid a monthly stipend for, for living expenses. So that's how I was able to use my GI Bill uh, towards my flying was it was all tied in with a college program, which I ended up not completing because of deployments and life, basically. Yeah. But I got to the point where I got through my commercial single before I deployed. I see. Now, and I'm familiar with this, you know, even, even at home in my family, you know, my, my wife was in college and on reserve actually she was in the army reserves after she got out of her time and active and uh they ended up pulling her out of her classes for a deployment and 
it's tough to just drop everything in your life uh, mm. to go. And this is part of that sacrifice that we're talking about. Um, and so but you, when you came back from your deployment, you picked up where you left off and worked on your CFI. Was that also in the San Diego area? Uh, at that point, I, I, I was living back in Temecula, uh, my hometown. Um, I, I moved back home. I actually ended up getting a divorce uh, as I got out of active duty. Um, and uh, I ended up moving back into Temecula like within six or seven months after the divorce was finalized um, and ended up meeting my new wife in the process of all that. And by the time we were, uh, well, I deployed, I'd moved back or we'd moved into a house in Smecula together. Um, and I ended up going to French Valley, uh, which was like 10 minutes up the road for me to go to an airport to finish my CFI. Yeah. So uh, I'm sorry to hear yeah, the, about this, the, the, the struggles you had there with your first marriage, but I mean, it sounds like, you know, you, you were able to settle in an area and continue your, your dream was, Aviation, since, and we're going to get to your, your family and your background in aviation, but uh, was it always something that you absolutely knew you wanted to do from the very beginning and you just kept pursuing it every chance you got? Or it's something that, uh, that kind of just developed as you were moving forward? I'd say a little of both, right? Because growing up in it, like, it, it, you know, obviously the development of watching my dad, uh, watching him fly seven threes, uh, DC tens. Uh, I think he was on the mad dog for a little while when he first, uh, joined legacy. Um, he flew the seven, five, seven, six, uh, ended up retiring off the, the seven, three, uh, which is the main reason why I got into contact with you was, uh, cause one of his FOs was one of your captains. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I knew growing up in it, like it was always something that I could do. Uh, and by the time I got 18 and I got my first discovery flight lesson, once I got bit, the, 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 the bug was in me and I knew I wanted to fly. Uh, and it just, you know, kind of came, kind of would go away and then come back. And every time that it would go away, by the time it was coming back, it came back like tenfold. So, yeah. So as, as time went on and the more and more you were progressing in your journey in aviation, the the feeling of the pleasure that it gave you in this you know career field you're te- what i'm hearing is you're telling me it, it just kept getting stronger and stronger mm-hmm. 100% uh you know now being a cfi uh i was actually having this conversation with one of my students uh the other day the only thing i hate about being a cfi is the fact that i have to drive an hour to go to the airport ah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I, I, I enjoy, I enjoy the flying aspect of it. I enjoy the, the teaching aspect of it and, and watching these students go from having absolutely no clue of what's going on in an airplane to, you know, obviously passing a check ride and being a licensed private pilot. Yeah. Yeah. Now uh, we talked about some of the common issues that flight instructors are seeing out on the line right now. Um, has anything changed since the last time we talked about that? Are you seeing the same kind of uh, issues with students and kind of this overconfidence as the last time we talked about it? I'm still seeing that um, with with the, the same students that I've seen that we talked about. I'm still seeing that with, um, but for the most part, most of my students are super humble about it. Like it, 
you know, aviation is a, a humbling experience, regardless of whatever you do, because at the end of the day, it's something that can kill you, you know, and if you, if you don't have that mindset going into it, that literally every time you get in that airplane, you could possibly not come back from, you know, come back to the ground, or you do come back to the ground, just not in the way you want to. Um, and, you know, if you have that mindset, you're going to be a good pilot, right? Like you're going to be safe about everything because you're not going to push yourself into positions that aren't there. So I would say the ones that I still see it in, I still see it in. And it's, you know, that's just going to be something that they're at this point that they're going to have to get over on their own and get humbled by the airplane. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you reminded me of a very famous saying I saw on a poster and one of the FBOs that I had visited in my time, building time at the beginning of my career. And it was a, a poster on the wall, was framed. And I remember reading it, standing there, taking a look at it, reading it and thinking to myself, wow, that's, that's so right on and so poignant. And that quote was, aviation in itself is not inherently dangerous, but to an even greater degree than the sea, it is terribly unforgiving of any careless incapacity or neglect. And it's like you're saying, it's like you could not come home if you are not following your standard operating procedures, your SOPs, you're going through your checklist, taking your time, recognizing hazardous attitudes, trying to keep them in check. A lot of the conversations I've had this week with the, the myriad of, of very well-experienced captains that I've been flying with have been about you know, issues with personalities out on the flight line. And really, it all comes down to that, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, even, you know, even still going into the, the big worlds, right, you, you still have hazardous attitudes. And it still, you know, boils over into those worlds too, right? Going from, we teach it in the private pilot world because clearly it's still, you know, I wouldn't say an issue, but clearly it still can happen or arise even up into the the 121 or, you know, the 135 or 91 world that, you know, Roger flies in. And, you know, it's something that we teach so that you can watch out and not let those attitudes cause a major mistake that you won't come back from. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, Roger and I met in 2005, I want to say, or late 2005 or early 2006. And we were flight instructing together, and we shared a lot of the same students. Um, And uh, I got to tell you, it was a pleasure for us. I know Roger feels the same way to give instruction to know that some small part of what you're giving to the student is going to stick with them for the rest of their life, their career, uh, their journey. Um, Is there a moment that you had, especially now that you're kind of towards the tail end of your flight instructing time, at least for full-time flight instructing, is there a moment that you had that really stood out among all the others? Not one in particular. Uh, It's it's more of like the culmination of everybody that I've soloed uh, that, that moment when they get back from their first solo and just watching their face, watching their expression of, you know, like, Holy crap. Some of them are, are, you know, still uh, cleaning up their underwear. Uh, some of them are totally <laughs> excited. Uh, but you know, 
everybody has that, you know, just this, I, I can't explain the smile. They have this smile on their face that, you know, holy crap, I just flew an airplane by myself. Yeah. And that, that to me is my favorite part of aviation is watching the students, you know, finally realize like, oh my God, I'm doing this. I'm doing this without Alex actually, you know, having him intervene for me or, you know, I'm doing this on my own and, you know, he's not there. Yeah. Well, it's like walking that tightrope without the safety net. You know, you've always have the, your safety net of your flight instructor sitting next to you, ready to slap your hand away from a control that you're not supposed to be touching at that point in time, uh, or, or sitting there trying to teach you lessons on how not to get distracted by dropping that pen or having a conversation at an inappropriate time uh, and breaking that sterile cockpit rule. So once you leave the cockpit and say, all right, don't mess it up, it's definitely a humbling experience. Yeah, no, it really is. Um, and that that is the, the biggest thing for me is, is those moments. Uh, only secondarily, uh, with uh basically taking somebody up on their first flight in a small airplane and you know again it's a it's a different smile and for those who have gone through it they know exactly the smile that i'm talking about right uh the they're just 95 percent of the people that come back are just have this like ear to ear big cheesy grin and you know they get bit and you know, the, the only thing that I would say is a struggle for most people to get into aviation is just the fact that it's so expensive nowadays. You know, if it weren't for the GI Bill, I probably wouldn't be in aviation. So I, I'm thankful for that. But on the flip side of that, I, uh, I, I'm, you know, one, once you kind of get to the CFI level and you start having people pay you to fly, uh, it gets a little bit easier on the, uh, on the cost, you know, per flight. Then I, I, I remember that, like, as a flight instructor, there's some, it was almost like soloing a student was better than somebody passing their check ride. 100%. I don't really, I don't really remember any of them any, anymore, period. I hate to say it. Yeah. I, I, you know, there was a couple, you know, Tony and I have kind of talked about some, some that, that I remember a little bit more than others, but even those that I, I flat out just don't remember half of their names, <laughs> half of their names anymore. Yeah, I mean it's a long time ago too for us as well. I mean we're talking about and I'm old and a my decade, memory, and my memory isn't isn't what it once was. But um, <gasps> so how many times? How many times did you have? Did, did you feel like you were close to to death with with the students next to you? Only twice. Yeah, um, that's pretty, that's pretty good. And that's how many hours do you have instructing? Uh, close to a thousand. Okay, so you were so we're actually that's right about where I was. It was about nine hundred. So what that's, happened that uh, that made you wonder if you were going to make it? Uh, let's see. I'll go with the 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 shorter story first. The one that I uh, blessed Tony with on our flight. The 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 guy he just he had this fear and you can you can tell right um we we went on takeoff roll um and he was one of those guys that was on the ground doing the yoke right like as we're coming up to a turn and you just see him and he starts looking like you know he's going to turn left right and really it's you know all your feet um 
And after a couple of turns of doing that, and he's like, should I be doing anything? This was the discovery flight, not a student, right? Yeah, this is it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and, that, and that's exactly it. It was it's a discovery flight. So he's just sitting there, you know, doing stuff. And like he looks at me and he's like, Should I should I be doing anything? I was like, No, no, no. You sit there, right? I'll let you know when you can take over the controls, right? We'll we'll, you know, we'll go take off and I'll get out to the practice area and you know, let you take the controls, you know, out there. Well, we get out and we had already established like what a positive exchange of controls is. Um, and we'd gotten ready to take off and uh, I was in a, a Piper, so the trim wheel is in between us for people that don't know where trim wheels are in Piper, right? If you're just used to a Cessna. Um, we had gotten to take off and we screamed down the runway and we started climbing almost at a VX style of climb out in a, in the Piper. And I'm just like, well, this is kind of weird. Like, okay, let me push forward. Let me roll in trim and push forward and roll in trim. And finally, I'm getting out of trim, right? I'm, I'm running out of trim. And I still, we're still going up like this. Um, and so I, I let go, right. We're like 300 feet off the ground. I let go of the controls. Cause you know, if, if I'm going to die, right. Like, let me at least know the reason why I'm going to die. And I, I let go and I see the control yoke still back. And I'm like, what? so I look over at him and he's got it like this. And, and I had to, to basically slap his hand to, to break him out of the, the fog. Cause I tried telling him to let go. Right. So I had to slap him. And, you know, he, he let go of the airplane uh, and uh, we were, we, you know, we were good from there, uh, got out to the practice area and the whole time that he was flying, I swear we were flying around basically like this at a hundred knots. So, but that was, that was the first, or that was the second real time that I'd been scared. Uh, you know, cause I, I, we're low to the ground. Like I've never experienced anything like that. Like a student locking up on me. Yeah. You weren't, you weren't expecting it. No, not at all. Yeah, right. Especially like like you said, it's a it's a discovery flight, right? Like it, you you would not expect that from a discovery flight. Maybe a student, right? But not a not someone who's never been in an airplane. Uh, you know, basically saying like, oh, let me grab the controls of this, you know, this airplane while the, in, the instructor's trying to take off. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> and the other time that I really got scared was uh, I was. With this, so he, there's a backstory to this that's kind of long and lengthy, but he, I'm not going to get into the whole backstory. He was a private rated, instrument rated uh, a commercial student, right? So he clearly knows how to fly. Um, and he had ended up crashing an airplane at another flight school when I was working up at French Valley, um, basically because his iPad told him he was over the airport. So he decided to, uh, land the airplane when he was about three quarters of a mile away from the airport because his iPad said he was over the airport. Yeah, I know. I see, I see the look you're giving me, Tony. (laughs) You know, when you're, when you're trying to look for the airport at night and you're literally just staring at your iPad going, Oh, well, it says I'm right over it. So might as well just descend. Right. Like that's a logical explanation. (laughs) So, um, terrain so ahead, terrain, terrain, pull up, pull yeah. up. The, Approaching the fu- runway Q4. <laughs> the, the funny thing about his, uh, crash was he ended up landing about three quarters of a mile away from the airport that he was said to be over. And he landed on a dirt strip, which was actually not a bad landing. However, said dirt strip, the one berm that was in the dirt strip was about 300 feet after his landing roll. 
So he hit the berm, launched himself up into the air again and smashed down and, you know, totaled the airplane. Oh. Uh, so that's the backstory, right? Um, so he, uh, he became one of our students at our flight school because, you know, you crash an airplane at, a, you know, another flight school at the field, you, you naturally move flight schools, right? So. Oh, yeah, you want to uh, fly. So. Yeah, yeah. You, you want to fly again. And, you know, that school, you know, you're probably not going to ever fly with them ever again. Right. So you go to a new school, right? The logical, again, logical uh, decision there. Right. right. So he had been a, a student of a, another one of our instructors for probably like three or four months uh, or three or four weeks. And he, the, the instructor came to me and was like, I cannot get him to, you know, understand power off 180 landings and, and, and short field landings. Can you, or, and lazy eights and a couple other commercial maneuvers. Right. Uh, he's like, can you go up with them and kind of like, help him out and kind of because i can't get through to him so maybe you can get through to him for these maneuvers yeah um so we had planned on going up and doing some pattern work that day and before i say any of like what happened for you two gentlemen how do we control our airspeed in an airplane pitch and power thrust levers <laughs> okay in okay. a 172 you push what's that out of control. <laughs> what is, what's the 172? Oh, okay. So, so um, you have power and small, pitch. Like small airplane. Oh. <laughs> small little tiny airplanes that get in your way when you're on short final and uh, decide to break in the middle of your approach. The, those airplanes, the little like annoying ones. Yeah, uh, I don't really see those. Uh, but anyway, continue. <laughs> so damn caravans. Clearly, <laughs> clearly we know we control airspeed. A clever question there. No, 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 no clever question. Like I, I this is going back to piloting 101, oh. right? Like you pitch your air, you pitch for your airspeed and powers for your altitude, right? right? Your, or let me rephrase it. Your, your throttles for your altitude. Well, we had taken off on this lap in the pattern and, uh, we were going like, I think like 85 knots on climb out, which VY in the, the 172 is like 74, 75 knots. So we're like 10 knots faster and we're gaining on the Cessna 150 that's in front of us. Like we're, cause they're going half the speed of smell and we're going 10 knots faster than we should be. So we're, our, our closure rate starting to, to get there. Mm -hmm. um, and I looked at him like, Hey, you know, got, got a guy in front of us, like slow us down. Oh, okay. So he pulls out the throttle like 400 feet above the ground. And I just look at him, I, I slam the throttle forward and I just look at him like, whenever have you done that? Like, why, why are you doing that? Uh, like, have you done that any time before to slow down is to pull your throttle? No. Okay, so today is the first day that you're gonna start doing that. Cool, awesome. Let's continue. So we continue the lap in the pattern and uh, we do a short field landing um, and, touch and go, right? Nothing too exciting, right? It's a touch and go. So we're in process of, you know, cleaning up, pushing, pushing in our carb heat, pulling up our flaps, getting ready to, to slowly ease in our throttles so we can go back up in the air. And as the instructor, right, I do my due diligence and look at the flaps and notice that they're still down as he's adding full power and rotating. Kind of like when you were flying with me. <laughs> yes, 100%. <laughs> so um, we... I looked and I, I pulled the power and I slammed us back down onto the runway, right? Because their flaps were still down. And I, you know, it was like, dude, like, what are you doing? Your flaps are still down. And he points to the inside flap indicator of the 172, right? Because he's lifted up the lever and the little thing goes up with it, right? Mm -hmm. The 
he's like, no, they're, 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 they're up according to that. And I'm like, no, they're not dude. Like, look at, look outside your window. What had happened was the actuator. Um, it's obviously an older airplane and it, you know, the actuator started wearing out and uh. we we, it didn't catch to, to cut, pull the flaps up. Right. It's not a big deal. It's a quick, easy maintenance fix. But the fact that he was going to rotate and go with, you know, 40 degrees of flaps, that was the same lap in the pattern as pulling out the, the throttle. So I just looked at him. Clearly we have to go see maintenance anyways. And I looked at him and I basically kind of yelled at him. I'm like, dude, you're done. Like we're going in, like get out of the airplane. Yeah. So yeah. Those, are, those are the only two that really scared me. That's yeah. it. Yeah. And, and, you know, hearing those stories, uh, there are thousands of stories like this. It's part of the learning process. The reason and we've, we've discussed this on a previous podcast as well. The reason the FAA has changed its testing standard from the PTS or practical test standard to the new standard, uh, Alex, uh, what's it called? The uh, ACS? Yeah, ACS, Airman Certification Standard. Yeah, so the Air, Airman Certification Standard is because in that new standard, there is language that the FAA has put in there that clearly states that for every part of the training, the decision-making process is now being evaluated. Whereas in the past, as long as you can complete the maneuvers within the PTS or the practical test standards, whatever, I forget what it was, five degrees, it was different standard for private pilot versus commercial pilot. So, you know, so many feet in altitude, what, 50 feet in altitude for commercial and 100 for private, what is it? Nowadays, everything's the same. It's plus or minus 10, plus or minus 10, plus or minus 100, right? Ah. But they're taking the risk management into it. Oh, so they've changed from having different standards for different certificates to now it's all one blanket standard, 10, 10, and 100. But judgment is now being evaluated. And you were telling me previously that the, it's not just for the test or the check ride where you're being evaluated. But every single lesson, whether that yeah. be part 61 or part 141 school, every single school is going to have decision making you know, and judgment as part of the lesson. And that is an, an effort to combat those individuals out there that have a desire to fly. And, and you know, God bless them. They, they want to be a pilot. They love the idea of, of commanding an aircraft. But maybe they take longer. Or maybe their decision-making isn't quite safe. And because it's not quite safe, they need to reevaluate either their decision to be a pilot or the process in which they are learning and moving forward. I had students back in the day that after 60 hours of flight time, they were ready for their check ride, And they would pass no problem. Um, I had other students that had 200 hours of flight time, and they still weren't ready to pass pass their private pilot checkride. And it doesn't mean that one pilot was necessarily better than the other, especially that early in the game, but it did mean that some people needed a different approach than the standard. They needed something a little more, whether that's a little more confidence in themselves, a little more practice with hand-eye coordination with maneuvers, or maybe more studying of the rules and regulations that govern aviation, as we call the far aim, 
or the Federal Aviation Regulation and the Aeronautical Information Manual, the book that comes out. It is the pilot Bible, if you forgive the expression. It comes out every year. Anyone can buy one on Amazon for relatively cheap. Um, and it reads like legalese because it is legalese. And some people have a really hard time with that. Have you had any students, Alex, that just had a hard time following the rules? Not really, because from like early on, um, obviously the stuff has changed with, like you said, from going from the PTS to ACS. So the, the risk management is more into our teaching style. The, the decision-making is more embedded into our teaching style earlier in the process than it would be back in the PTS days. And it's not that people are, aren't having problems following the rules. It's just that some people just struggle a little bit longer and that's the learning process. And it doesn't have anything to do with the, the, the rule process. In my opinion, the students that I've seen, um, there are, there are, you know, a couple obviously standouts that like they just, for whatever reason, lack situational awareness or they, you know, they just, they, they're not grasping it. And, you know, to those students, like you probably should not be flying, but, they still want to fly. They still want to, you know, put money in. Like I'm not going to stop them from, from flying. Right. I, it's their dream. But, you know, at some point you may have to have a real hard conversation with them. Like, look, you're, I know you've got like, you know, 50 hours, but I really don't think this is for you anymore. You know, you, you should probably, you know, quit while you're behind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very true. And we're going to hear more from Alex and captain Roger right after the break. Roger, I do have to tell you something though. Um, one of it the guys me. that, oh, okay. Well, <laughs> well, it was you Fuck because uh, the, the, the bird strike that you took yeah. is still being shown at Ameriflight. Is it? Yes. I, the reason why I know that is because when I interviewed at, one of the guys there was at Ameriflight and they still show your bird strike. It's like red asphalt. Check out these images. <laughs> just That's your unreal. story, your story it, to me, like out of everybody's story. Sorry, Tony, I do love you, but your story, Roger, is the the, the most like inspiring to me because yeah. you were beat up physically and you know emotionally and mentally throughout your whole journey, and you never gave up. Yeah, I'm I'm very fortunate that I've made it to the point where I am. I guess the only reason I didn't give up is because I didn't really have any other options. I tried. I mean, it just, you know, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do and there was no easy path to get there. And so it kind of became almost the easiest path to just keep doing what I was doing. But it was, uh, it's not been pretty. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I was going to say, we know from that uh, bird strike picture, it wasn't yeah. pretty. <laughs> and, and yeah, there was definitely the, the graphic presentations of that in that particular too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Well, we've been talking with Alex Daigle about being a certified flight instructor in general aviation and some of the challenges that today's flight instructors can expect out there on the flight line. But we also have some very exciting news. Now, Alex came to me, sent me an email a while back. 
he just reached out, went on our website and said, hey, uh, Tony, I've uh, been listening to your show and you interviewed a captain that knew my father when my father was flying. He's since retired and he gave me a little bit of a background on, on his father and how he was a legacy airline captain. And he flew with uh, Kevin Elmore, um, a gentleman who we've had on the show uh, more than three times and for sure will be on the show again in the future because uh, Captain Elmore... Uh, has had an amazing journey and continues to be a major part of my life. And the funny thing is, he's been a little bit of a mentor to me over at Legacy Airlines. And when Alex sent me this email saying, hey, you know, he knew my dad, and is there any way we can kind of all get in touch if he can if you can reach out to him, if that's okay. And I immediately sent a text message over to Kevin and said, hey, uh, I just was contacted by one of my listeners from the podcast that has listened to our episode that we did together, uh, both of them that at the time we had done two, we've since done three episodes together. Um, and he was so excited. He was like, absolutely. And so we kind of all made that happen. I feel very honored and blessed that I was part of that uh, catalyst of that connection. And then Alex started you know, saying, hey, can I reach out and ask you some more questions? I'm like, absolutely. And he told me how he was a flight instructor, building time. He lived in the area close to me. And we have gone back and forth. And he told me, hey, I, I got my application out at one of the regionals. And I was thinking about putting my application out over to Sandpiper. But he hesitated. And I had to set him straight. Alex, do you remember what I told you? I don't actually. Yeah, he said, I, uh, <laughs> well, he, you said to me, you know, airline apps, I think only lets you send out one at a time without, you know, I get uh, have to pay more money or something. Yeah. And I'm like, no, yeah. do not accept, <laughs> do not accept that. Uh, hold on, I'll get you a phone number. So I quickly made some phone calls and, and I was like, sent you a text message immediately. No, you get your application in today because I knew your history. I knew your father's history and I knew your goal. And your goal is to, at some point, follow in his, his footsteps and honor him by working for the same carrier, which is Legacy Airlines. And so within, what, 24 hours, you text me back, hey, guess what? <laughs> <laughs> Got an interview. <laughs> so yeah. how did that process work? How fast did that all happen from the time that, that I reached out to you with, you know, here, call this number, send this email, to the time you, you know, or today, I guess I should say. So I want to say, um, so when, when we first started talking, I was interviewing for this company called Airshare. They're kind of like a um, wheels up, just a smaller version of it. Uh, and they were based out of Kansas City. Um, subsequently, I didn't get that job. And I just kind of kept my nose to the grindstone and uh, flying. I applied to Sandpiper and the gold standard uh, regional carrier, uh, if you will. Um, and uh, within, I'm trying to think within, Sandpiper called me back within a day, day and a half, and gold standard called me back within about a week. Um, and I interviewed with both of them. And I uh, received offers from both of them. But because I'm choosing to go with uh, Sandpiper, I, uh, I'll kind of continue that story rather than the gold standard story. Um, so they interviewed me or they called me up and said, Hey, love to interview you. Uh, we'll fly you out to Texas. Uh, and you can interview at Sandpiper headquarters. Um, 
and it's a you know basically a full day interview process and uh so got out there the night before uh flew me on legacy airlines out to uh dfw uh and uh got into a hotel woke up the next morning uh caught the van over to sandpiper hq I uh, was there with, uh, I want to say like six or seven different uh, individuals, all from varying backgrounds and times. Um, and at the time, I was only at about 1,300 hours. Um, but because the industry is how it is right now and they're hurting, they're interviewing you at 1,300, you know, 1,200 hours because they know that you're obviously going to get that 1,500. And basically, they want the ball rolling almost instantaneously. So when 1,500 comes around, you're pretty much like rolling right in with them. Yeah. So, um, and I, I interviewed, I did, uh, I, the one, I will plug one website. Um, it is, uh, God, now I can't even remember what it is. The interview prep website that I went to, I paid the, the $45 or $50 for the month. They, they basically go through every airline of like interview questions and, uh, jet chart questions and what you're going to look for and everything like that. Now I can't even think of what it is. Um, but they, I will have to plug them and I'll, I'll, I'll look it up and yeah, we'll let put you a know. link in the show notes as well. Once. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, their, their questions were pretty much spot on to what was being asked in the, the interviews. Uh, you know, you get that the typical, tell me a time wins. Um, and, uh, but the, the one areas that they did focus on that I had no knowledge was the, the JEP charts area. Um, mm. Because as, you know, a normal flight instructor, right, we're, we're using the government plates and, you know, using for flight, stuff like that, uh, that it, it's with it. So the JEP charts are obviously something new to most of us. Um, and that's kind of where they asked a lot of their questions, because that's what we're going to be using when we get to, to the airlines. Mm-hmm. Um ask some technical questions here and there you know obviously some background hr questions um and then went up and waited uh for for lunch and uh after lunch and everything like that they i was the first name to be called out of the room right uh because you you basically go up to this like little conference room when you first get there you bring all your stuff up there bags and everything um and i was the first one to be called out and they said, bring your stuff with you. And I went, oh. you know, kind of like let down, like, okay, well, clearly I didn't get the inter- or didn't get the job because, you know, they're having me bring all my stuff. Why would they, you know, have me not bring my stuff if I wasn't going to get the job? And I, uh, we were walking down the stairs, talking with the guy, kind of in this like uh, kind of down attitude. And instead of walking out the front door, we hooked a right down the hallway and they pulled me into a room and gave me the uh, conditional letter. Nice. So yeah, and uh, how fingerprinted, did you like... peed in the cup, and came back home. Yeah, and so you never had to do any kind of simulator evaluation. Nope. Yeah, I've heard this that uh, they forego this. And now, Roger, when you were at uh, the Express Jet, formerly, uh, you had to do the simulator event, and then you and I both applied to. Well, I don't know if you want to call it what it is but we both applied to sky west uh back in oh six yeah and we we flew out together uh had to get our own hotel rooms had to get our own flights uh had to go out to denver 
and show up for this interview. And the interview back then was very similar. We sat in a big conference room and uh, there's always the one or two outliers. One guy came, do you remember that first guy that came in and he was wearing like a Hawaiian shirt and you know, like unbuttoned and jeans and flip flops and everybody <laughs> kind of blocked that whole thing from my memory. Yeah. We, we were all in there in suits, you know, here we are 20 somethings and 30 somethings. We're all in suits. And, and this guy comes in in a Hawaiian shirt with, you know, sunglasses and flip flops. And he's like, so man, like I, he was asked to go home. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, I would hope he was asked to go home. You know, this isn't like, you know, uh, Virgin America, what used to be Virgin America, we can say that now that they're no longer in existence, but uh, those, I remember going for interviews there, the gouge was, don't wear a tie. If you wear a tie, they're going to cut it off you um, because they were, they just wanted to be different. They wanted to be hip and cool and, and that's what they wanted to reflect. So they knew you read the gouge if you showed up with a, you know, casual, business casual um, with a shirt that's, you know, unbuttoned at the top, no tie and, and relaxed. So it's important, as you, know, you mentioned, doing the interview prep uh, and reading the gouges out there that are available to most people. If you have an internet connection, there's no reason why you can't be prepared to go for your interview. Um, but it was the same for uh, Roger and I. And after the HR interview, then there was the technical interview. We took a, I think it was a 50-question test or something like that for the ATP uh, and they were asking you about tear weights and pallet sizes and all kinds of stuff that you're like, this is a regional flying CRJs, right? I'm just checking. Okay. So, and then after that, if you know, you went and did your simulator evaluation and I remember mine was in a Frasca portable trailer. Frasca thing. Yeah. It was like a food truck and, and I was like, okay, what kind of airplane is this that we're flying? And and then he told me, and I don't even remember what it was. I'm like, okay, well, so give me some speeds here and, you know, like uh, uh, gear, gear, maximum gear uh, speeds and flap speeds. Goes, oh, no, don't worry about any of that stuff. That, that's not what we're evaluating you on. <laughs> it was, it was a, not a good experience for me. Roger, I won't speak for you, but <laughs> let's just say neither of us got invited to <laughs> return. <laughs> Neither of us got invited to join SkyWest that year. <laughs> yeah. I said, thanks for coming in. You can try again in six months. And I applied at uh, the Sandpiper uh, as soon as we got back. And uh, that was Friday night at uh, around 10 o'clock at night. I got online. Airline Apps was the place to be to do that. Um, and then Saturday morning, I got a phone call from Dallas, Texas. I'm like, what's this? Hi, we got your, inter we got your resume. You want to come in for an interview? We'd like to fly you out tomorrow. We'll pay for the flight. Okay, that was Sunday. Checked into the hotel and Monday morning hopped on the van and brought all my stuff with me and went to their HQ, which is a different location back then, but now they're a nice new independent location. Um, and uh, did the same kind of interview you did, uh, but it was a two-day event. And if you passed the first day, on the second day, they asked you to come back. They gave you another hotel room. And uh, then you would uh, sit in the, in the uh, Fokker simulator full motion simulator uh same thing they just wanted to see that you could fly the airplane using digital displays and as long as you could do that you were golden so it sounds like in today's marketplace a lot of that technical evaluation has been put aside because of the need for pilots in the industry now, your 
interview at Sandpiper, what was the hardest question they asked you? Uh, I, I, trying to find the, uh, the takeoff distance on a jet chart. Oh. <laughs> the, the, the other questions were, I mean, they were, they were simplistic uh, advanced questions, right? Like what's the, how does, uh, uh, the basic theory of a jet engine work? Like what's the, you know, what, what can you get off of the, the bleed air? You know, what, what can that run for you? You know, how, like I said, super basic questions for, for the advanced stuff. Um, and then like the, the jet charts was kind of the, the more difficult questions because, you know, clearly not seeing any of that stuff other than reading the gouge that I got you know, it, that was where I struggled. Yeah. But the guy kind of, he, he asked me one question and I couldn't find out where the answer was. So he asked me a different question, um, which ended up drawing me towards where the answer to the previous question was. And then he asked me that question again, and I answered that question. Oh, okay. So they really, they, you know, and, and I could tell you this, when times are good, and the times have been good for many years now, even throughout the whole COVID thing, um, they really do want you there. You know, they took, especially yeah. if it's a, a company that paid to get you on, non-revved you out to their, or positive spaced you, actually, not out to their uh, facility, put you up in a hotel, they want you there. At that, you know, if they called you for an interview, it's your job to lose. The job is yours. That is the attitude, and I can tell you this, if Kyle was here, he'd tell you the same thing. By the time they call you in for an interview, the job is yours and it's yours to lose. And the only way you're going to lose it is to go unprepared, have the wrong attitude, or just lack the knowledge that is the basic knowledge that you're supposed to have at that point. Yeah, no, and I, I agree with you on that. Yeah, close a shade. I'm going to butt in and say that I somewhat disagree, actually. Oh, yeah? Uh, this, well, this coming from a guy that's gone through one, three, three interviews now that I have not been offered the job. Um, you know, you kind of brought up Sky West and you're in your hole, um, Alex, about the the theory of a jet engine. I, I don't really remember a lot about the initial Sky West interview, which was the first interview that I that I went to um, that I had. Um, obviously, Tony was just talking about that. I remember I was kind of in trouble at that interview when they asked me to draw a jet engine. <laughs> now, not only number one can I not draw, and number two, I was like, "What? Well, I you do realize that I'm flying a Cessna 172? Like, I don't really know. Does that now? I guess my question: Does that make me unprepared? Which is that going to make me ill prepared or unprepared to then go fly for SkyWest Airlines? And I, I guess maybe now, even then, I think I have the self conscious in myself to, to say that you know what? I don't think that that's a great indicator about you know, the job being mine to lose to, to a certain degree. I think that that's, that that is the truth. Um, but it's much more complex than that. And so for all, I mean, I can say for all the people that are out there that either have gone through this process and, and these two, these two blokes here have made you feel like crap. I've been through it. I can count three at least that I have interviewed for and I did not get the job. And with and it's in it's also a kind of an element of timing as well. You know, Tony and I were just talking about the Sky West interview. I don't think that that was being unprepared. I think that at that point in time, we were a little we were a little less experienced 
than some of the other people that were in there. And they didn't need to take the amount of people um, that they do now. I think that if Tony and I went back in the exact same, with the exact same experience and went and interviewed at any regional right now, that we would probably both be hired. Even if we gave the exact same answers, it's just that things are different depending on, on when you happen to go for your, for your interview. And, you know, it's kind of funny just reliving some of that, you know, Tony came back. If you want to look at it's, it's a single event where our, our paths diverged in, in this industry, it's, we got back and he tried again and, um, and applied at Sandpiper. And I went the path less traveled. Um, you can argue one way or another, whether that was good or not, but, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's luck of the draw. I got furloughed from express jet. I interviewed at another regional, um, compass, which I don't think they're around. I think COVID did them in as well. Yep. Um, I interviewed at compass and I did not get that job. And that was coming straight out of express jet. Um, and I've also interviewed at frontier. I interviewed at frontier and I did not get that job. Um, now I, I can make some fairly educated guesses as to why, but I don't really think it was because it was unprepared. Um, it was unprepared or that, you know, that it was, that it was my job that I lost. Although to some degree, the compass might've been true. I, I probably went in just thinking I was going to get that job. Um, well, I think, I think it, like I say, I think it's much more complex than just, you know, just because you get an interview, these companies hire people knowing they're not going to hire everybody. And that's where I kind of diverge a little bit from your guys' outlook is that most of these companies, they know that they're not going to hire hire 100% of the people that come through. And so, I mean, take heart. Most companies encourage you to imply six months. Most people, Southwest being a huge example of this, you know, today might be a little bit different, but several years ago when everyone wanted to go to Skywest, they encourage you to come back and they would flat out tell you that your chances of actually getting the job offer the second, and sometimes for some people, even the third time around are that much greater. Um, don't lose heart. It's, you know, sometimes, yes, we make mistakes and sometimes, yes, it is our, our fault. And sometimes, yes, we, we lose the job on our own, but not all the time. Um, take heart. There, yeah. there is a job out there, even if it's six months. And it's not always you and your and your shortcomings, if you will. Well, you know, I thank you for saying that, Roger. I didn't mean to make it sound like, uh, you know, if you don't get the job, it's because you weren't prepared. But it, like like we said, it is very cyclical, this industry. And when you and I both went to the Sky West and both got turned down letters, I don't think it was because very different. I don't think it was because you and I weren't prepared. I think with our experience, we were above and beyond prepared. But we later found out that they were looking for people with turban time. Uh, they were looking for people Correct, that had it was a different, it was just a different, it was a different time. time. And is that they had the amount of people that they had um, to choose from the amount of slots they had to fill and the amount of people that they had to choose from to fill those slots was a much different dynamic in the supply and demand world than it is, than it is now. Yeah. And the way the market is right now uh, at the time of this broadcast, uh, yeah, you, you, they're going to be hiring not just at the regional level, but at, at the legacy carrier and mainline uh, airlines. What they're talking thousands every year. And that means, yeah, it's a cyclical industry. They're going to kind of lower their standards because they need to fill uh, whatever quota they have put on themselves. And and yeah, if you go in, if you get interviewed, I I do think that their chances are good if you go prepared and you have the experience that they're looking for and you have the right attitude. 
Um, it, sometimes the attitude is more important than your knowledge. And, and yes. I, I'd venture and to say... In the end, that's why I don't think I got that Compass job, because I think that I went in... I was young and stupid at that point in time, and I just kind of had that assumption that... I was going to get the, you know, I was, you know, I had this preferential interview. I had just gotten furloughed. You know, we know that he can pass 121. And I'm, and I think that that probably showed at the, at the tender age of, I don't know, 24 or 25, I think I was at the time. Um, the attitude is huge. Yeah. Yeah. If they see you have a good attitude, you know, so you might get a couple questions wrong uh, when looking at a JEP chart that you don't normally use because you're using NOS charts or the National Aviation. Uh, charts or whatever their system charts um, yeah I think your chances are good right now with, uh, with aviation and with airline jobs yeah. Tony you've been on what two interviews uh, I've had two interviews in my entire career and I and I've was hired at one carrier and yes in my career so he's so you've had I have flown and been rejected from more jobs than you have even bothered applying. <laughs> yeah, and, and feeling, feeling pretty good about myself right now. Feeling yeah. good. You know, and that's part of the Hold reason on, that you know, wow. not just with Alex uh, asking the question, but with some of the other people that I have spoken with over the years and mentored. You know, they asked me, you know, where should I? You know, I've offered a job here, but they also offered me a job there. Which one should I go to? And I'm always asked the question, well, number one, what's your end goal? How, how can you get to that end goal quicker? Because we live in a seniority-based career field. That's what airlines are. And not just airlines, but pretty much any operator, 135 operator, the same. It's like how long the most senior pilot gets the best schedule, gets the best aircraft, everything. So what... The end goal is very important on knowing where to start. Now, just because you start at point A and your buddy over there with the exact same experience starts at point B, it's a crapshoot. You'll never know where you can end up. But because of what you said, Roger, I've had one job interview. And I have been able to, through nothing but fortune and you know, just playing my cards right, being in the right place at the right time, I was able to use that through a flow-through agreement that was not even existing at the time that I got hired. I was able to come on to a mainline carrier. That was my dream job. And that's part of the advice I also gave Alex is, you know, you could go to one of these other regional carriers, but then you're going to have to, you know, manipulate your decisions as the time comes and interview again and again and again until you end up where you want and every single step stone you take you start from ground zero what most people don't realize is when you get a job at an airline if you switch company you start from ground zero bottom of the seniority list bottom of the pay scale bottom schedule opportunities you'll have to probably be on reserve for a long time you'll probably have to get a crash pad at some weird city that you don't live anywhere near because you're at the bottom of the seniority list it it doesn't act it's not the same as like being an experienced mechanic or plumber or electrician or some other trade where hey, if you're a 20-year plumber and you decide to go work for a different company their union is going to ensure their teamsters are going to ensure that you get paid according to your experience that does not exist in the airline industry and unless you're in a 135 operation or a Part 91 operation where you know someone 
And they go, well, with your experience and how many type ratings we're going to give you, we're going to start you here. But at an airline, at a 121 operator, it doesn't exist. It's all about data hire and your seniority, your relative seniority. So if I go work for one regional and decide two years into it, ah, that regional over there is giving better bonuses. I'm going to go over there. You don't carry anything over. You start over as a new hire day one, regardless of your experience. That's why I always find the journey of today's aviator so interesting. I could be flying next to a person uh, like my captain right now. Here we are in Honolulu. He used to fly for Aloha. He used to fly for cargo companies. He used to fly uh, all these different outfits, all these different aircraft. And I'm like, man, your experience is amazing. And he's been at Legacy Airlines for over 25 years or 30 years. It's just an amazing history. Whereas the next captain I fly with might be a flow through like myself who had one interview in his entire life. So you never know who you're sitting next to. And that's part of the, the fantastic discovery of today's aviators and their journeys. Well, and one of the things that it still kind of gets me for today, it, you know, if, if a pilot gets furloughed from, you know, say legacy airlines, it's not like they can just go pick up and go to, you know, Acme Air or, you know, a different major carrier, right? And basically go apply. You know, if if one airline's furloughing, nine, 90% chance that all the other airlines are furloughed. Yeah. So, you know, you can't just like, you know, you're an accountant and you lose your job at, you know, XYZ accounting company. You can go work for ABC because ABC is hiring, even though XYZ is downsizing. Right. You know, it, does, it doesn't work like that in the airline industry. And that's, that's, the, that's the hard part of the cyclical nature of it all is when it's down, it's down for everybody. Yeah. Now, now, your interview experience, it sounds like it was very positive. You were the first one out of the room. They invited you. They gave you the conditional letter. Tell us about that. What is a conditional letter of employment? So basically what it said was that we're 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 going to hire you um barring any major uh thing from your background check you know if anything comes up that you know that you know i i hit accidents or you know i had a dui or something like that that you know is hidden in my my record because they're they're going to pull from the national driver's data national driver's license registry mm -hmm. uh they're going to pull uh you know from the faa registry um and basically look into you. Um, and from there, once, once you kind of meet all the wickets from that and you get the humana humana uh, from the background check, then you go in your packet gets sent to what's called the captain's review board. Uh, and that's where the captains review it. It's like three or four of them look at your packet and basically say yay or nay. And then after that, that's when you get the, the true conditional letter of employment that's kind of the, the position of where i'm at right now yeah now so, now you were telling me you've got some exciting dates coming up so you're you've reached close to your 1500 hours and instead of having to wait for your full 1500 hours what news have you recently received so i uh i talked with uh sandpiper and their recruiting team uh, I guess they're, it's called the class prep team at this point. Um, and they had told me that like, they want me to have 1460, 
before they will schedule me going into um, the ATP, CTP, and then orientation into to the airline. Um, so I, I'm like two hours away from 1460. I'll have it tomorrow, actually, when I go back to work. Um, and uh, so they, they got me scheduled for the ATP, CTP course, uh, which is required now uh, by the, the FARS to, to complete to get your um, ATP for your ATP written. Um, which is going to be out in Dallas area. It's actually run by ATP Jet School uh, in the Dallas area. Uh, and it's basically a week-long course uh, that they send you to to get you through. I want to say the basics. I got the, the schedule on in an email. Uh, it's, it's the basics of jet uh, transition, right? Your, your high-speed aerodynamics, uh, your, your weather... Uh, up at altitude versus, you know, normal weather, yeah. um, you know, airport operations, you know, like I said, it's not specific to the 121 world because they can't make it specific right. in the sense that like, it's, you know, they have to genericize it. If that's even a word to, to get you through the basics. And then you sit in a, a, a sim for three days. So it's four days of ground, three days of sim. And then, uh, after that, you're good to, you meet the, the, the wickets to take the, the written. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'm doing that. I leave for Dallas on the 15th. Um, I'm there the 16th through, I think it's the 24th. Uh, cause that's when the, they're going to schedule me for my, my written. Um, and it's actually kind of cool that, uh, one of my instructors that I work with, he's going to be going to, uh, the gold standard, uh, regional, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, he's, uh, He's going to be in the same class that I'm in. Yeah. So well, that's exciting, and you know, you're going to know someone in the class. That'll help alleviate some of the stress involved with any kind of Jeopardy event, is what we call them uh, in the airline industry. Anytime you go to the training department and you're going to be taking some kind of evaluation, whether that's a written test or a simulator a test of some kind, an exam, or uh, what we call check rides or line checks, anything like that, an evaluation, it's a Jeopardy event because those are pass, incomplete, or fail. Those are the only three things that come out of that. If you pass, you pass. It doesn't matter if you pass by 100% or whatever the pass rate is, 82%, whatever it is. Passing is passing. Then there's incomplete. That usually happens when either A, you've done everything according to the standard, but because you might have to have repeated one or two things, which is allowed in most cases, then you maybe you ran out of time for the scheduled allotted time that you had. So the instructor or the examiner will then uh, consider it incomplete. It's not a failure. It's just not finished. And then you'll schedule another time to come back to complete whatever is left in the examination. And then the last and final one uh, is a, a fail. Now, most people have had at least one failure of a check ride or a stage check or, you know, they failed something and had to repeat it or even, even just failed a lesson and had to repeat a lesson. Um, and it's okay. Life goes on. I've failed. I've, I failed a check ride. When, AT, when the Colgan crash happened, the uh, FAA and Congress uh, both enacted this ATP rule, the 1500-hour rule, 
before then it didn't exist. All you had to have to work at a regional airline or at any airline and be an FO is a commercial pilot rating and a minimum hours that the FAA deemed necessary to sit in the right seat of an airliner. Um, and so why go through the expense? Now, at that time, you could take your ATP written. Uh, I think it was a thousand hours you had to have. You could take the written. And then when you had 1500 hours, you could actually take the ATP practical test. Um, now it's a little bit different. Like you mentioned, you have to go through this course, has sim time. Now you have this conditional letter of hire. Who's paying for the course? Is Sandpiper paying for this for you? Sandpiper is. Sandpiper's uh, putting the, the bill up for my travel and the, the course uh, through this. Most, most regionals today are going to put the bill for that because it, it, you know, the only way to do it is either get hired with regional or you pay it on your own. And, you know, most people aren't going to pay it on their own. So yeah. it's, it's expensive. I want to say it's like five or six grand for this course. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, it, and boy, if times have changed. Uh, now, granted, none of this was required when I was going through, but I did go to a flight school in the Phoenix area at uh, Deer Valley International Airport. And at Deer Valley at the time, I went to a flight school that was named Pan Am Flight Academy. And I took their airline course. It was the most expensive course they had. I walked in with uh, my private pilot license in hand, and I had about halfway through on my instrument rating. Uh, when I walked in there. And because I took this airline transition course, part of it was an $8,000 add-on. And with that $8,000, you got seven days of a mock airline ground school where we studied the systems for CRJ-200. And the school had acquired, a, I think it was called a level D sim. It was a non-motion simulator with the full mock-up of the, of the cockpit of a CRJ-200. Um, and so it had everything but motion. So you could count it as, as time. And so I, I have a couple hours of simulator level D sim time for a CRJ 200, but I had to go through all that as a bonus. It's, they, they called it a hiring tool that is in your kit bag so that you are now, uh, they know that you can pass, uh, a mock airline ground school. So they'd be more apt to hire you. In today's day and age, where you have to have an ATP before you even sit in the seat, it's a little bit different. Now, when I had to go through this, what they called uh, FO or FO ATP or SIC ATP, it was, you had to take the full ATP certificate, but you were restricted to the right seat. And the airline had to pull the trigger on this so quickly that they just told everyone, okay, you're going to get two two, uh, one day of ground school and two simulator sessions. And on the second day of your simulator session, it's your ATP. It's your exam. <laughs> and their failure rate, because I was the second class to do it at Sandpiper, the failure rate was more than 70%. And we're not talking, oh, you... You fail the PC, you come back for some, you know, recurrent training and go up and do it again. No, no, you got a pink slip. So, oh, I, wow. yeah. And I remember exactly what I did. I got flustered because my, my feet, my seat filler pilot, who was a, a sim instructor on reserve, basically, who was called in on his day off to be a seat filler for me because I didn't have a captain uh, getting any kind of training for that day. 
Uh, he didn't want to be there. He made it perfectly clear. He wasn't there in on any of the briefings. I'm not making excuses. It's just a fact. And during probably the first hour, I was doing a go-around, an ILS to minimums, a truck on the runway go-around, typical stuff you hear in a simulator event. And I started processing through the go-around, which I've done like every training event I've had since the company, since I got hired. Not a big deal. But I wasn't getting the call-outs from my non-flying pilot, my pilot monitoring. Um, and so I got flustered, and now I'm kind of looking over at him, and he's an instructor. Why is he not doing the call-outs? So I'm telling him to do the calls. And in this frustration, I accidentally didn't cycle through the, the box because you're not doing a regular flight. You're supposed to sequence the box so that when you shoot the approach in the event you go missed and you go through the motions of going missed, the FMS and the guidance on your navigation will cycle through the missed approach procedure. And I had missed that in the frustration of, hey, this guy's, I'm so nervous. I was nervous, probably more nervous than I've ever been on a check ride. And I just didn't feel prepared. And he was not giving me the call outs I was expecting. That threw me off. And I, I messed up. I did a go around. I engaged autopilot. Uh, or I had him engage the autopilot, and the airplane suddenly just banked to the left. And by the time I said, this is not right, autopilot off, I'm hand-flying this departure missed approach procedure, I was already more than seven or eight degrees from my course, which I think the PTS was five. So as soon as I was outside of the PTS, the simulator stopped. The Czech airman that was giving me the evaluation said, Tony, what happened? And I looked up, my heartbeat was in my ears, and I remember you know, looking at him thinking, oh, I know what happened. I didn't cycle the flight management system. I didn't, I didn't cycle the flight plan. I'm like, yeah, I see what happened. I tried to hand fly it when I saw it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do, but I was already, it took me a couple degrees to pull my head out and realize what was actually happening, and by that time, I kicked the autopilot off and tried to get back on course, but I was already outside. And he goes, yeah, that's exactly what happened. So he had me sit in the uh, debrief room for about 30 minutes. Then he brought the six by six pink piece of paper. It wasn't an incomplete. It wasn't a pass. It was a fail. And it's, it's one of my biggest regrets. At the same time, when I got called back about two weeks later, to do some retraining and then take this ATP um, check right again, I got to tell you, that was some of the best training I had ever received. It was one-on-one -on -one training with an instructor who was the union rep for the training department. He sat me down. First thing he said to me, he goes, for the past week, you've been not sleeping and thinking that your career's over and that you're always going to have this failure that you have to explain and all this stuff. Am I right? And I said, yeah. Absolutely. He goes, don't worry about any of that. He's like, it happens. He goes, you've learned from it. We're going to do some training. I'm going to show you some things so that it doesn't matter who's next to you. Because he goes, I read the report. He goes, I see that, you know, it's your ride. So you, you have to dictate the outcome. He goes, but I saw that you had some hurdles to overcome. And he goes, don't worry. I, when I'm done with you, uh, we're going to 
we're going to make it so that it doesn't matter who's flying with you. If they're dead, comatose, whatever, uh, you're still going to be able to shoot perfect execution on whatever's left that you have to do. And sure enough, that's what we did. We spent hours in the sim uh, working on it. And then the next day I came back and passed with flying colors and even got a couple compliments. So we all can bounce back from our tough moments in our career, our failures. We've all had them. I'm not ashamed of it. I think I came back a much stronger pilot because of it. But man, have times have changed. Now that you're, mm-hmm. you're going to be going through this course, what did they tell you about it, what to expect? Uh, for this course, it, it's not really much of like the, the, the drink from the fire hose type thing, right? It's, it's more of kind of like we're, we're getting you used to terminologies and, and, and different things that you aren't seeing in the instructor realm, right? Like, I don't know turbine engines other than the little bit that I've read here and there, you know, the, the, the study gouge that I've gotten. So it's more geared to, from what I'm gathering to steer you away from the 91 GA world and get you into the 121 world, but without getting you, like I said, getting you super generalized, super generic, like training into it. Yeah. Yeah, and, that's, so. and that should be a really positive experience for you. It'll help with the transition. Um, and so on your first few days of new hire class, it's going to be familiar. And it's that familiarity in something that you've studied it, you know, familiar with. It's not hitting you with the first time. It's not, you don't have that shock of, hey, what, what's this all about? That's what helps for you to succeed. It's that you're prepared, not just because you've studied it, but you physically have experienced it. That's a completely different uh, bag to to have to contend mm-hmm. with. Yeah. So, no, it's uh, I'm I'm looking forward to the training. Um, I was actually talking with my wife about it um, yesterday and today. Like, like, you know, it's it's exciting. Like, I'm 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 not saying that I'm over flight instructing, right? I I still enjoy the the thoughts and and stuff behind it, but. I've been doing it for three and a half years, you know, time for me to move on airlines, right. It's natural progression. No one gets into flight instructing to, to flight instruct, you know, it's always used as a stepping stone for most, but there are those that, that definitely that's all they want to do. I know a few of those too. And there's nothing wrong with that there. You know, I God bless them. I love flight instructing. Um, it's definitely was a good time. I, kind of the reason I became a Czech airman when I had that opportunity uh, for those all those years. Um, so there's definitely a lot of positive from that. But here's the question. Are you going to maintain your flight instructor certificate when the time comes, or are you going to let it lapse and, with the idea of, I'm never doing that again? Well, a wise aviator told me over lunch, to uh, not let it lapse. So I'm not going to let it lapse. I didn't, even before uh, this wonderful guy that I had met uh, <laughs> told me to not let it lapse, um, that I, I had had that mindset that I wasn't going to, because yeah. you never know. Like it, in the aviation industry, right? Again, it's cyclical, it's fickle, right? Like what happens if I get furloughed from Sandpiper? What happens if I get furloughed from Legacy? Because, you know, I got the flow through agreement. Well, what can I do? Well, if my, my instructor's still valid, yeah. I can go back and instruct. 
Yeah, on top of that, and, I, and I've met many a captain that feel the same way, uh, their children or friends of their children decide, hey, Dad, uh, you've had a wonderful career in aviation. Uh, I want to be a pilot just like you. And they're like, yeah, Johnny or Susie, uh, let me just get my flight instructor certificate reinstated. Now you're talking a lot more money. But if it, you keep it current and occasionally go up and rent a 172 once or twice a year just to, for the joy of it, or I've, lately, I don't know what it is. It's like something in the water. I've flown with a bunch of captains that are like, yeah, I just bought an airplane, or yeah, I just bought it. got an airplane we're restoring, or I'm about to buy an airplane. And I'm like thinking, ah, the life of a captain. <laughs> You'll be there one day. Someday. Someday. Some, yeah. No, uh, I, I, I will admit, like, my my dad uh didn't have his uh flight instructor he had his ground instructor which that never expires yeah um so he's able to do uh uh, some of the ground with me when i was going through my stuff yeah but he he never kept up with it mainly because he he instructed for like seven years and he was burnt out by the time he had gotten oh where did he go golden west it was a old commuter airline way back in the day. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, he, uh, basically he, he flew for them and they, they closed and he went to some accounting firm cause that's where his degree was in, in between, you know, airline jobs. Cause the industry was down in the eighties and early eighties. And he got hired on by this company called air California who uh, eventually merged into what is now legacy. So, you know, he, uh, I don't think he would ever go back. And even at talking to him, you know, in retirement, like when he, when he went to retire, like, are you going to fly? I don't know. You know, like he, he didn't get his medical, he had, uh, health issues later in his, um, in his career, he had a, a heart attack and a couple of other diabetes, health issues, stuff like that. So by the time he was retiring, I think he was just really burnt out on, flying and trying to keep the medical up and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And and I remember but, you telling me so much about your dad. One thing you told me and, and actually shared with me on the day we flew together out there in Riverside was you were like, yeah, I got to go to my car. I got to show you something. And you came back and you had something in your hand that belonged to your father. It was a piece of history that he gave you. It was one of the most wonderful things that you cherish. What can you tell me about that? I'm trying to think of what it was that, uh, that he gave me a leather jacket. Um, oh yeah. No. Uh, the, it's the, the bomber jacket that, uh, that they, you know, when everybody decided to make the transition because we're going to be cool and hip and no longer wear our, you know, the uh, uh, blazer jackets and get rid of our hats. Um, they went to the, the leather bomber jacket and, uh, yeah, I, he gave me his, um, after he retired and it's, literally his jacket with his name stitched into it and the the beautiful legacy crest uh the eagle crest in the back um of it and like it, it's one of the i i i have it i cherish it i i wish that they were still wearing them because you know it's a it's a beautiful piece of history uh that you know that i that i can't wear anymore well i have good news so. for you sir though the legacy airline went did away with it for reasons beyond what we have time to discuss today <laughs> the sandpiper airline uh they 
also said, no, you can't wear these because that's what the main line said and we're going to follow what they said. And the pilots came back and said, well, if uh, you're not going to let us wear these very expensive leather bomber jackets that we bought out of our own money because it was not it was an optional piece for the uniform, mm-hmm. uh, then you need to do what Legacy did and buy them back. Yeah. And about a week later, we got an email when I was there and they said, yeah, uh, we uh, we're taking back that uh, you can continue to wear the uh, leather bomber jacket if you if you care to. So okay. I, unless something's changed that I don't know about, if you wanted to, you could wear it again out on the line. Well, good. I hope that I can wear it out on the line and, uh, and at the, the Sandpiper. And hopefully by the time that I get to Legacy, they'll, uh, you know, obviously rethink their uh, leather bomber jacket there. I still think we should go back to the uh, white uniforms and white hats like Pan Am had because that was pretty cool. <laughs> it was pretty trick, man. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know they copied Navy uniforms. Yeah, yeah, very much, very much. <laughs> I wouldn't so, even I mean, mind yeah. uh, flying in a, a little flight suit with a bunch of pockets for my cell phones and my gadgets and my oh. chargers and <laughs> walk around. If you've ever worn, if you've ever worn a flight suit, you you never want to wear anything else. Like, like pajamas. I wore one once, and I'm like, man, like why why can't we why can't we all wear? like you know they're just it's comfortable it's like wearing a big pajama set you've yeah. got pockets all over the place yep you got a little pocket down by your ankle for your for your uh your little hat that folds you know it's come on man yeah no it was they're, they're awesome yeah you know but professionalism i get it right it what, what's the flight suit going to serve other than like you know oh hey it, it it's fire retardant there's really the only big purpose of it and that you can fit your g-suit under it well, can you imagine some of the uh, the old captains that you see around wearing a flight suit that weigh like three or no. four hundred pounds? No, <laughs> the guys that have to to move their seat back while you do the control checks. Exactly. <laughs> uh, captain, uh, I'm gonna do a control check. Uh, do you? Oh, yeah. Hold on, hold on. Let me roll this uh, seat back. Stunk. <laughs> yeah. So that's awesome. But no, I'm uh, the the. The industries, you know, it's coming back around uh, for the way that they're, you know, training now. It's it's changing, right? Because I think, and and don't I'm I'm not trying to say this in the wrong way. I think they're going to try to weed out the people that wouldn't necessarily pass a um, a technical aspect of the interview, like where you and Roger were like, oh, we'll put you in the, you know, the back of this food truck slash flight simulator, and you know, you have to to shoot a, you know single engine ILS in a, a Baron that you've never flown before. Um, <laughs> right. Like, yeah. I think they're going to try to weed those out through the, the, the normal schooling process at this point, Yeah, because they're, you know, they're hurting, everybody's hurting, which is why they're hiring, you know, getting interviews done at like 12, 1300 hours, because, you know, they, they want the, the numbers so yeah. that as it comes through, you know, like they may hire like a hundred guys. And of those hundred guys, the, going into class right the there may be weeded out like 90 left after that before they even right. go to class and yeah the retention you know, rate is, is relatively high lately that uh, the numbers that kyle's been sharing with me the retention rate has been relatively high meaning people are a little bit more prepared or maybe you know they've just really catered to if you need extra time we'll give you extra time and really get everybody in and the reason they're hiring i think people without the minimum times because they want to get you before somebody else poaches you because everybody's hiring. It's not just one or two companies. Everyone is hiring. Uh, If you thought that, Hey, uh, I always wanted to fly, but I, I went into a different career. 
now is a great time to say, hey, let's pull the trigger and do this. Because by the time you're done with flight school, if it's in the next couple of years, if you go to one of those 12-month programs and just, you know, drink from the fire hose for a year, your job is almost secured unless something crazy happens, you know? No, and that's, that's where we're at right now is, you know, like, let, let's face it, I'm older going into this, right? I'm not a 24-year-old kid. I, I'm, I'm, I'll be 35 in March this year, right? Like, uh, I'm older going through this. And, but, you know, I, I completely understand the, you know, what's involved with it because I've grown up with it, right? So mm-hmm. I have a little bit more of an insight than other people do. But, you know, if you're, if you're in that mind, you know, like where you were, where, you know, you were in a completely different career field. And your wife decided to give you a, a discovery flight to, to curb your uh, appetite for constantly looking up at airplanes. Now you can, you know, constantly look down on people. Right? Um, <laughs> yep. So like for, for you, you know, you completely changed your career. What, 25, 26? 26, yeah. 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 So, I mean, if, if other, if you did it, other people can do it. Right. Like, again, I'm 35, I'll be, you know, going into this career a little older. So yeah, now's the time. And people think that, you know, and I thought that too. I mean, we all thought that, especially when you're young, you're like, Oh God, you know, I'm already behind. There's somebody younger than me. You know, when you're young, you care about that stuff. You care about, Oh, that guy's younger than me or that gal's younger than me. And they look how much they've accomplished. But when you get a little older and you realize that that, that doesn't matter. There's time, uh, you know, and at the end of the day when you're looking at your career you look back yeah there's that one or two individuals that have been flying for 40 years and then there's a one or two individuals that are getting ready to retire but they've only been flying for 10 years that doesn't make their journey any less valuable than the one that's been doing it for 30 or 40 so yeah there's it's never too late no, it, that it, you're, it, there is, it's never too late to start and change over careers, especially in the flying career. Because uh, once you once you get bit by that bug, you'll you'll never regret it. Yeah. So, so with with going to Sandpiper and the bases that Sandpiper has and where you live, what what is your knowledge? What is your outlook on the commute? Because as I understand it, there's not really anywhere. Let's just say even remotely close to where you live now. Okay. The closest base is DFW. Right so, out of Ontario, seven or eight times a day. Yeah. So there, there is flights. Uh, and There's so where I live, I just flight in the day. day. Yeah, yeah, Ontario to DFW. That's pretty much all I fly. And, I didn't realize that there was that many per day. But. Well, and out of Southern California, you know, I can go down to San Diego, I can go up to John Wayne, I can go to LAX or Ontario. So I have four airports that I can really choose from that if I, you know, miss a flight, you know, I can get out at another airport. Yeah. So, um, but no, DFW is where I would be, where I'm going to try to be based out of, right? Um, I know it's a more senior base, but that's, right. my wife and I plan on moving to Texas. We're trying to try to move to Texas by the end of this year, actually. Um, oh, okay. So you actually so, kind of already got the plans in the works to actually make your life easier before, before you even start. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're native Californians. Um, we've lived in California pretty much our whole lives. Um, actually my wife has, I've lived in uh, Virginia for three years, but, um, you know, I'm, 
it's a whole political thing, right? You're that ready. Really is. I'm just I'm <laughs> I'm over I'm over I'm over overpaying for California. I don't know, having lived it with the commute, Tony's somewhat even worse, although he had his he had his brief his brief heavenly experience there in LA. Yeah. What was that, um, two years? But I mean the commute between what Arizona and Seattle and then the Bay Area and not necessarily in that order or whatever it was. It's definitely I think if I if I if I could go back and do it again, I would definitely do several things differently, but I probably would have I probably would have taken that aspect into account a little bit more. You know, when I went to Express Jet, they had I was I was actually based in Ontario. Um, but that was a short-lived thing. And then when I went back, I'm pretty much like you. I mean, my clothes based in Houston, and I didn't even—I was in Chicago for a while. And it's, I mean, when you look at it over the course of the entire month, I mean, when you're looking at a four-hour flight each way, and then taking into account, you know, riding the L from O'Hare down to Midway or Midway up to O'Hare in the middle of the night. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, off and on for twelve years. Like, yeah, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, when you're when you're looking at like ten days off a month, and then you look at the time that you spent commuting, and that's another, you know, two or three or four. You know, it. Yeah, it's it, tough. Unfortunately, it's real. Yeah. yeah. Although even that, I guess, is different now with them offering hotel rooms and for for commuting pilots and whatever. It's, yeah, the four I mean, four commuter hotels a month, five five or six years. You get a hotel room, but um, Sandpiper is, uh, they're only giving you, I think, four hotel rooms a month. Right. Four commuter um, hotels a month. For. Yeah. So, and you, I mean, you, I mean, you figure you're going to have four, maybe five trips on a, on a bigger bid day, on a 31 day bid month or something. Right. I mean, that's even, that's once a trip on the, either the, for, the front or the back end. Right. Well, if you're a yeah, line holder. But, and you can, yeah, I was gonna say if you're sitting a line, not sitting reserved at the, you know, at the airport or at a crash pad. Right. Well, yeah, if you're on reserve, you're gonna have a crash pad. I, I don't, I right. don't know. Can you get away with that? I don't even know anymore. Maybe you're flying so much you need a crash pad. Well, they don't have a short call, long call reserve. They just have one reserve and airport standby. So if you're the low person on the totem pole, you're gonna be scheduled on your reserve days to sit airport standby, whereas you're at the airport physically on property for eight hours and getting paid as such. And then you, you know, go back to your crash pad and uh, hang out. And then at 5 p.m. Yeah. that night, you see what you're doing I know the next that day. It doesn't exist anymore, but this was one of the best things about ExpressJet that I always thought was horrendous for everybody else at that airport reserve or ARC or whatever, whatever people call it. We, we could only do it twice a month and it was a four hour period. And that was horrible. I thought that that was horrible. And then what? there was like I got in this crash pad with um with the like down flushed or whatever GoJet guys that were from United. It's like pretty much unlimited for eight hours at a time. You go hang out at an airport, and I'm just like, say what now? But that was one of the best things about Express Jet was that I did I had no idea at the time, but we had it was, you could only be signed twice a month, and it was only for four hours, and then you were done. Wow. Yeah, wow. I'm a, I'm a little jealous of that. Yeah, Sam we had uh, eight hours. That was even back ten years ago, twelve years ago. Yeah, well, that's one of those wow. like little cherries in the contract. You know, it's like, well, but yeah, but we have this, and then the other guy is going to have something completely different, and they're going to go, oh, that sucks. That's like, yeah, but we have that, and so you're always every 
airline is going to have some kind of cherry in the contract that they are like, that's their give. And for Express Jet, probably that was part of their give. It's like, well, yeah, you, you can only have to do airport ready for two days a month. I had no idea at the time, but looking back, I realized that, yeah, that was something that didn't come close to anybody else. Yeah. Four hours and twice a month? Dang. Oh, yeah. it, it still sucks. Yeah, but see, at, yeah, Le- at Legacy Airlines, we don't have airport standby for the pilot group. Mm-hmm. We have something different. We have what I like to call line holder reserve. And many of you that are, have been listening now for a while know that what I'm talking about. Line holder reserve is you hold a line. You're a line holder. You show up, you do your trip, and you land in a base other than your own. For me, that's usually either Phoenix or Dallas or sometimes Charlotte. And on day one, you go from, for example, I went from Ontario to Dallas and I sat for three and a half hours doing what? I don't know. Go get a meal. Like almost every trip. I've seen some of your pairings. It's like you go and then you sit for two and a half to three and a half hours after every single leg. Yeah. Now multiply that by hundreds of pilots. (laughs) Now you have a hundred of hundred or so pilots for that equipment type sitting there doing absolutely nothing for three hours and Chris scheduling can go oh well that flight is late we have an airplane in dallas let's recrew it you've been reassigned cha-ching now your phone rings it's crew scheduling you know what it is and now whether or not you answer the phone depends on how much you like to be beaten across the head with a baseball bat so you answer the phone <laughs> And you say, yes, this is uh, First Officer Tony. Uh, I'm, hi, hi, how are you? And they say, yeah, First Officer Tony, you've been reassigned. You are now departing on flight so-and-so, leaving from uh, gate number so-and-so in about 35 minutes. Your overnights will now include here, here, and here. Congratulations, have a nice day. Click. And you're like, wait, (laughs) what? So the union says, you're not required to answer the phone. Let it go to voicemail. You could be taking a nap. They don't know that. So, <laughs> yeah, that's what I call line holder airport ready reserve uh, is that, that three-hour sit. We saw that over at Sandpiper, too. They used to do that at Miami when it wasn't a base. And you were ripe for reassignment. And there are certain months where I get reassigned almost every time I have one of those sits. And other months, like this month, that I, they haven't touched me yet. And so, knock on wood, it's... I don't think... I don't think I got, there's no way I got reassigned more than 10 times in my five-year career at ExpressJet. Again, uh, perks no of way. <laughs> <laughs> I've been reassigned seven times in one sequence. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's like that scene uh, in Airplane where they're like, your aircraft is now arriving at gate 10. No, gate 11, gate 12. And it's the same. It's like, you're now doing a layover in Cincinnati. No, Champaign. No, Cleveland. No. <laughs> you know, I've heard you, you said, told stories about that. And I just, I never had those. I never, I, I, I remember a couple of times, but I, I don't know if I had five, let alone I know I had 10. Wow. Wow. Surely you can't be serious. I am. I can. Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> my my favorite it wasn't a reassignment i had i did have one time it was like my second to last day of work before i quit there yeah and i was getting off the airplane and and i had somebody there to meet me mm-hmm. not for not for um reassignment you know what they were there for a dr- piss test a drug test yeah i got one last week i got, <laughs> I got out of it they're oh. like <laughs> like this is like my second to last day of work but okay uh, yeah, don't, don't worry about it. Yeah, why pay for it if you're, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally, my last day of work is tomorrow, and then I am 
going home and I am not coming back. I don't, I don't even remember how they knew that, but I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, I don't know. That, that was, somebody was there to meet me. You got lucky. I got one oh, last week. I get off the plane in Ontario. I land at 10 o'clock at night on a Sunday. It was like some random thing. Done? And I was done, right? And I was going to get in my car. I was going to be... I was going to drive home, be home in like 15 minutes and, you know, and what every single pilot, as soon as they, they land, they run their parking checklist or sh- shutdown checklist, whatever you call it at your airline. And the first thing you do is the, whoever needs to go to the bathroom the most, which you did between the two of you, you discuss it. Hey man, I'm going to hit the head real quick. So like, okay, that means you need to go really bad. So go. So the first thing you do is you open the cockpit door and you get into the bathroom and you take care of business. And then when you come out, you start packing up your stuff and the other pilot goes to the bathroom, takes care of business. And that's the nice thing about having a lav on a, on a narrow body or a wide body aircraft right behind the cockpit door. So you can take care of that. Now you can take your time, deplane, go get on the car and go home or go down the van, go to the hotel. And you're not, you know, dragging it out and having to go use the restroom up in the airport or whatever. So that's the standard operating procedure. Unless... The number one flight attendant, as soon as you open the door, goes, hey, Tony, someone's here Somebody to see you. you. You're like, oh, <laughs> really? They're like, yeah, you got a drug test. Like, oh, well, good, because at least she told me before I went to the bathroom and not after, in which case yeah. uh, it's problems. So, yeah, I ended I up. Reminded, they always pulled me off in like middle of trips. It only happened a couple of times, but I was like, I don't care. Like I had an hour and a half to kill anyway. You need me to go <laughs> down to the medical center down there into the bowels of Houston hobby or I mean yeah. inter, intergalactical get your 15 minutes of pay credit Whatever. for your for your donation yeah I mean, it's like <laughs> a meager pay credit of you know $30 an hour so I got paid I'm sure like 58 cents to go do my whiz quiz there you go so always be prepared never jump into the toilet right away always look on the jet bridge and go make sure there's nobody there for you um here's here's what can happen uh, the Jeopardy driver is struggling. You're like, I can't hold it anymore. So, you know, you open the cockpit <laughs> door, you jump in there. You're like, ah, you take care of business. And, you know, you're like, oh, longest pee ever. And then you get back in the cockpit. Now you're starting to pick up all your bags. You're ready to go. And as soon as they open the, the door, someone's out there going, Tony, hi, congratulations. We need a sample. And you're like, I just got rid of like five liters of urine. Oh, okay. Do you have a bottle of water? I can, have a bottle of water I can finish right now. One point five liters. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Well, before we finish up today's show, gentlemen, I, I wanted to get your take on the most recent news that has completely flooded the uh, the industry in the past forty eight hours. Recently, it was announced that Frontier and Spirit will have a blockbuster merger. That is, Frontier is buying Spirit for something like 6.2 billion dollars wow the biggest ultra low-cost carrier in the nation is gonna be one now we were we were kind of talking about names frontier and spirit and my captain kind of looked at me and said hey frontier spirit we're coming up with he goes fear it and i go fear it i like it and then alex sent me a picture about a couple hours ago hey look t-shirts fear it I have an old instructor who works for uh, for Spirit Airlines, and uh, he he sent me that picture, so I had to naturally forward it on to you. <laughs> yeah, it, it was fantastic. I, I loved it. Now, what we're talking about here, uh, this is an article. I have the link in the show notes uh, for you. It's from the Points Guy, 
a very reputable aviation news outlet. And it's entitled, Frontier Spirit Announced Blockbuster Merger That Will Create the Giant Ultra Low Cost Airline by David Slotnick. And this was uh, posted uh, two days ago, so on the 7th of February. Uh, Frontier and Spirit Airlines unveiled this blockbuster merger on Monday, announcing plans to combine operations and fly as a single company. The move marries two ultra-low-cost carriers that have complementary fleets and route networks. It approved it, and it would create this ultra-low-cost juggernaut, as he puts it, that would dominate the segment in the U.S. Monday's announcement gave few details on customers facing makeup of the new airline, including whether Frontier and Spirit will continue to exist as separate brands, combined under one of the existing brands, or combined under a new airline entirely. Spirit CEO Ted Christie said in an appearance on CNBC on Monday that uh, the combined company's name and headquarters location will be revealed in due time. So, hey, this is kind of not really surprising. Us pilots have always said that, you know, these ultra low cost guys would at one point probably merge or buy each other out or something to keep the competition low. Um, And that's exactly what's happening here. Uh, The Frontier Airline equity holders will own roughly 51.5% of the combined airline, whereas Spirit will own the remaining 48.5% after closing. So what does this mean for the aviation industry, namely airline pilots? Mergers are a very touchy subject. Each one is unique in how it treats its employees. Now, you can imagine uh, here at Legacy, we've survived multiple mergers, multiple buyouts, multiple combination of uh, seniority lists. What do you see is ahead for Frontier and Spirit if history has taught us anything? Roger, let's start with you. Well, I think that, I mean, those two combining, is, I mean, it's a juggernaut is one way to put it. I, you know, the thing with Spirit and Frontier, say what you want about them, but they have the largest amount of growth potential because they are flying a different demographic that previously has not been, the air travel has not really been open to them. And the amount of growth that is possible at that level is absolutely humongous because it's actually a new market. The rest of the airlines, the legacy airlines as a whole, I mean, they're all pretty much fighting over the same customers they've been fighting over for the past 20 to 30 years. Um, And so this is something that's kind of different. I, I do wonder, I'm definitely not an expert on it. I do wonder from an antitrust perspective, if there's going to be some concerns raised over this. Um, because if you think about the ultra low cost carrier segment, um, what airlines come to mind? Typically, you've got Frontier and you've got Spirit, and then some people will come out with Allegiant. But I think Allegiant is what's going to, is, is kind of going to be trampled underfoot, in which case I think that Allegiant is going to be the, the big loser in this. You know, I don't know how they're going to be able to survive against such a big a big company that's going to have the economies of scale um, to go up against that. And that's why I wonder where that, you know, if there's going to be some antitrust concerns. Um, Frontier, I've, you know, I've, I've flown on them. They're, you know, they're not my preferred airline, but, you know, I'm coming from, you know, I, I've traveled a whole lot because I've commuted. Um, and it's, 
it's definitely a no frills, but to their credit, they pretty much that's they, they don't sell you on something that doesn't exist. They you you, you kind of know what you're getting into, and you need to you need you need to understand that going into it. And for the fares that you pay, you know, they offer a product that a lot of people are willing to pay for. Um, yeah. But the two of those companies getting together—that's definitely a juggernaut of an airline with a lot of growth potential. Speaking of growth potential. Both airlines exclusively operate the Airbus A320 family of aircraft, making for a relatively easy task of integrating the two airlines' fleets. The two carriers combined have 354 new aircraft orders as of December 31st, according to Airbus. 354 new aircraft orders. The airlines are scheduled to take delivery of the new aircraft through the year 2026, it's not very far, four years away. Growing the combined fleet size by 75%, according to the airlines, from 283 aircraft in 2021 to 493 by the end of 2026. Jobs, 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 and jobs. And, you know, I know that they've got those on order. And, I, you know, I, I, I like, it, like I actually mentioned earlier in this, um, podcast I interviewed at Frontier, and this was about what, two years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, they were talking about growth even back then, and so I know what their I know what their plans are. I wonder how much they're going to be able to do. Just you know, like I said, I know that there's a, a huge untapped potential there. But if you look at some of the, they've already pulled out of some airports because of high cost. Um, San Jose, some of the New York airports, just because those airports charge a lot of money, and so. You know, if you're not going to fly to the bigger airports, you're going to fly to the smaller airports. But once you start flying to the smaller airports, you're also taken from a much smaller pool of people. And so I, I do wonder how many of those orders um, will actually come to fruition. But at the same time, they're going to take airplanes and they will be peddling the fact that, you know, you come to our airline now. And I mean, even without any attrition of any kind, when the airplane, when the airline itself is going to double, you're a captain. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you got hired today. You will be a captain yep. in what four years? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Because because you have twice as many airplanes. Now that's if everything comes to fruition on the time schedule right. and, and you know and which, you know, we, which it, I kind of have some, you know it's the airline issue. I have my right. doubts about, but still, I mean, even if it grows by thirty percent, which I think actually I think it will grow more than thirty. I think it'll be less than the seventy five percent, but way more than thirty, and you know, somewhere in the middle, forty to fifty percent, you're still I mean, from a relative seniority standpoint, you're an Airbus captain, and a lot of these guys are getting hired in their late 20s. Yeah. Now, hearing this news, Alex, now here you are getting ready to go to your first 121 operator. Does that make you doubt your decision and think maybe I should have put in my application at Frontier and Spirit? No, I still think, you know, where I'm at kind of, you know, I, let's face it, everybody needs that turbine time. Like even going to, to Frontier Spirit, like you're still going to need turbine time to go to. I'm not going to give them the due credit of calling them a major carrier, right? They're, they're, they're a low-cost carrier at the end of the day. Um, and they're just this side of a, a, a regional airline because they go to a little bit bigger cities than, than your regional carriers would. But they still require turbine time, which eh, yes I no. have a whole whopping half hour of, you know, like... I don't, I don't have much turbine time or turbine PIC time. So yeah, they prefer you know, it, but it stands, it's not a requirement. Frontier has hired 
a, uh, a general aviation certified flight instructor with thousands of hours of flight instructing under his belt. Um, and he's a new hire on the Airbus. Um, zero turbine time experience prior. But th that's uh, an anomaly, an outlier. Who knows what the, the actual uh, progression of qualifications were. Um, but it's exciting to hear all of these job opportunities for this. And like you said, uh, it's, it's smart what you're saying, and I am not uh, didn't expect anything different really from you. You still need to get your experience. You still need to be competitive in the market. And it's funny because we talk about this phrase called the thrill of the polyester. A lot of us have felt that, especially in our early age in this industry. We want to chase that turbine time, chase that PIC, chase that fourth stripe as quickly as possible so that we can then have the options to go to the bigger and better places. And for a lot of people, they still feel that way. And a lot, I, I see a lot of people probably doing some lateral moves here and start putting in their application. Well, and that's, and that's where I feel like, yes, I know Sandpiper's gonna, got the, uh, the, the guaranteed flow through to Legacy. Um, and, you know, it, at the end of the day for me, like, I would love to work for Legacy Airlines, right? to be a legacy pilot like my dad was, right? Like I'm a, I'm a legacy legacy. So, um, but I'm also not going to say no to, to other airlines. You know what I mean? If I'm coming up to like, if I'm at Sandpiper two, three years from now and I'm sitting in the left seat, you know, as a, as a captain and building my PIC time and, you know, I see the contract that gets negotiated out of this at, at Frontier or at Fear It, um, that like if it if it looks better than what I'm at, you know, then yeah, I may may do a lateral move. Or I'm not I'm not discrediting any airline because at the end of the day, you're still flying an airplane. It doesn't matter whose wings you have on you, right? Like we're all pilots. So, but yeah, yeah I'd love to be at American. But again, fear it's not going to be a bad one, right? I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to say no to United. I'm not going to say no to Delta. Uh, Southwest, any of them, right? Because at the end of the day, it's still a flying job, and that's yeah. what I want. Any pilot that you ask, if they're being honest, 100% of them will tell you, if you ask them, why do you work for the airline you work for, they'll tell you the same thing, because they're the ones that hired me. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's how I feel. Yeah. And so now, and Roger, you mentioned the possibility of antitrust being an issue with this merger, and possibly 75% is a, a little bit a bold of a statement. Um, but the Biden administration has previously given indications of reluctance to approve mergers and coordination in the airline sector. In 2021, the Department of Justice filed an antitrust suit against American Airlines and JetBlue, alleging that their Northeast Alliance, as they called it, amounted to unfair and uncompetitive practices. So American and JetBlue have argued that the, by coordinating in the Northeast, they can better compete against the entrenched airlines that Delta and United pose in that sector. It's possible that Spirit and Frontier will use a similar argument. The combined airline would be the fifth largest in the U.S. behind only American, United, Delta, and Southwest. It appears likely that they will argue that the combined size will allow them to compete against the majors, driving fares down across the board. So there's a precedent. Which I, I, I think I would have a hard time going with that argument because of what I said. I mean, I, I fully expect that there should be, I, I know about the American and the JetBlue deal that there was an, some antitrust. I mean, that's small potatoes compared to 
compared to those two airlines getting together. But at the same time, the argument that you kind of just raised that, you you know, we're going to better compete. You're not competing. I still don't think that you're competing for the same passengers. No. You can't, if I'm going to charge $30 a ticket to go between, we'll, we'll just DFW and, and Albuquerque, New Mexico. We'll just pick a, pick a couple cities. And you're going to charge $30 versus $150 for a basic economy ticket in the back of an American or United going from Dallas or from Houston. You're not, you are not, you're not advertising to the same demographic. And so I don't think like, how is that going to affect competition? Really? You're just squashing Allegiant. Well, you're taking oh, away I, I, your competition, which would be I mean, Allegiant and, and some of the other yeah, in Sun I mean, Country. Your, and your all competition other... right now is with Spirit, Frontier, and Allegiant. And now all of a sudden you take the bigger, the bigger two of the three and that you're squashing one of them. Yeah. But not really competing with the majors because I don't because I don't think that that is the same demographic. Now that is from a stupid pilot. Don't get me wrong. I don't know anything. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know really anything about antitrust or anything. But this to me, well, well I can totally see why those two analysts w- would want to get together because I think there's fistfuls of money to be made. Mm-hmm. I think that from a government perspective, they're going to probably look at this and go, "We need to take a look at this and and make sure that that the consumer is not going to get hosed by this." Because I would also, if I was Spirit and Frontier knowing that I'm squashing Allegiant and I can increase my my fares by $10. Now, we look at that, an increase of $10 and go, yeah, that's not that big a deal. But when you're charging $30 a ticket, all of a sudden you're increasing your fares by 33%. Yeah. Your profit margins, there's a lot of money to be made there. Mm-hmm. When you look at that from a percentage standpoint. And we will call this operation Preparation H. <laughs> and like I said, we're power to them. You know, capitalism isn't great, but it's kind of the best thing that we have. And they're yeah, they're going to try and figure that out. But I'm surprised if somebody says, "Hold on, hold on, let's take a look at this and how this is going to affect uh, the American consumer." Yeah. Well, and I agree with Roger on what he's saying that, like, you know, the, your the three like ultra low cost of Allegiant, uh, uh, Spirit, and, and uh, Frontier. Right, you're gonna take two of those three and merge them. Now you're gonna squash out Allegiant. Allegiant's gonna basically have a, probably a zero footprint on the market. Right, you're gonna put them up now as the the fifth largest airline in the U.S. on par with the majors. Right, right behind Southwest, and now their competition is gonna be Southwest. And yeah, then they'll have their eyes on Southwest, and that will that will drive Southwest already low cost prices closer to the ultra low cost but then like what roger said it's also going to raise the ultra low cost prices up which will mm-hmm. do fantastic for their stock which will reward all the executives and the stockholders of those two companies because they're going to dominate the market see, that, that becomes the argument in favor of letting the merger if you're if you're going to allow them and think that they're going to be able to compete with southwest and you're going to decrease the you know the cost of southwest that's going to be a win for a lot of people if you've got the, the fourth and fifth largest um, U.S. carriers that are buying for the same passengers. I still don't really think that Southwest and, and Spirit, as you say, are going to be buying for the same passengers. Um, I just don't really see that being the case, which is why I think that argument isn't going to necessarily hold a lot of water. Yeah. yeah. Well, the one thing that I could see happening out of all this, say the merger happens. And, you know, it goes into, you know, squashes out Allegiant and all this. Well, now you're going to get the, the, the top four, right? 
of American United Delta and Southwest starting to look at the practices that Frontier and Spirit are doing of like, you know, doing the ultra low cost, which is why they can keep their tickets so low, you know, putting some of those practices into some of the the, the major legacies. Yeah, it, it will definitely affect everyone involved. Um, I personally think, and, and granted, I don't have a, a background in marketing or, or you know business management, but I personally think that if companies like American or Delta United, the top three, kind of looked at it and said, well, you guys go do your thing. We're going to keep our prices competitive, fair, but what we're going to offer is a safe atmosphere where you don't have to worry about fights breaking out in the, at the gate and in the airplane because we're going to... That's a losing argument. <laughs> you guys have so many problems over there. Well, right. I, I'm so, I, I hate to disagree with you, Roger, but... You know, we may have some problems mm-hmm. over at the Legacy Airlines. Everybody that, does. I mean, that's, that's not any airline. That's but every airline. Look at the numbers. Look at the statistics. The police don't even respond to, to calls anymore at the airport at those gates. They just let them do their thing and fight. You know, uh, I, I honestly think that it's time that we promote that the experience that you get, the level of professionalism and quality we need to go back to the vintage days of flying where you got that meal that's fresh hand carved meats on the little cart with the caviar and the cheese tray and bring that shit back that stuff is what sold airplane tickets back in the day for the ultra rich and it was only after deregulation where it was deemed that hey flying shouldn't be just for the ultra rich it should be for everyone and that really you know degraded the experience who's to say whether it was right or wrong to do so but it's it's just this downward spiral and we have to stop it we have to stop we still you should dress up to go on the airplane not wear your pajamas and your tank top that says f you on it and you got kids around and and you know get your boobs sticking out or my favorite is i've had three experiences in the last six months where passengers said i can't sit down during the flight because i just had my butt implants put in and i just i have to stand during the flight and it's like well yeah sorry ryanair (laughs) (laughs) oh god help us (laughs) well gentlemen it's been a pleasure to have you on board today with this uh discussion to learn about alex's journey to have you on today was an absolute honor thank you sir for sharing that with us uh roger always a privilege to get your insight uh i love the fact that you give us a hard time uh and still uh, bring us, yeah, you keep us you keep us in line, and I do appreciate that um, sincerely. So I also want to thank uh, Captain Roger and Alex and all of you for coming along on this flight with us. As we are starting our initial descent into the podcast airport, I want to just say thank you for listening to Squawk Ident. Please help us out by sharing this podcast online and with your friends. Be sure to subscribe or follow to the Squawk Ident podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, we love receiving listener feedback. You can send us an email or even an audio feedback. You can record something on your phone and just send it to this email address that we have. That's aviatortony at gmail.com. Or you can go to our website and follow the link at www.aviatortony.com. That's Alpha Victor, the number eight, Romeo Tango, Oscar Nobu Yankee.com. You can also contribute to the show financially right from the homepage. Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram users can find us under Squawk Ident Podcast or Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident. One big final thank you again to my guests today, Alex and 
my co-host, Captain Roger. And thank you to all of you for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there. Be safe and take care of each other. Bye, y'all. Bye, everybody. See ya. Where's the button? Hold on. Hold on the